Good morning. Good to see you guys. Thanks so much for being here. A um, couple of announcements. Teens, tweens, seen, dismissed, whatever that's called. I can't get it right. I apologize. Uh, they're going downstairs, so if you're that age. Um, as they're exiting, uh, we on Friday are having a fall festival slash trunk or treat, and we invite all of you to be there. Uh, there's a card on your chair, maybe. If you don't have one, I've got some up here, and I'd be glad to give you one. Um, it is from 6 to 8 on Friday, and so we'd encourage you to dress up, uh, let your kids dress up. We don't want to see any scary costumes, so um, just be aware of that. Uh, part of the reason we're doing this is an alternative to Halloween. Uh, we're not, I mean, I'm not crazy on the Halloween thing, and if you'd rather not your kids trunk or, tr- or trick-or-treat going house to house, uh, this is a good alternative to that. And we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to have chili. Uh, we're going to have a hayride. We're going to have inflatables, um, just all sorts of fun stuff. So uh, we'd encourage you to participate in that. Now, the reason that we want you to have this card is a reminder to you, but also uh, this is more of an, a targeted outreach uh, event that we're doing. We're not putting this on Facebook. We're not inviting the community. But if you have a friend uh, or a family that you'd like to invite, this would be a great time uh, for us to get to know them a little bit better and for them to get to know us and just to have a good time with them uh, so, and so that they can see how cool we are. So take a card and give it to them. Um, I need about probably about eight more trunks. So if, if you can be here on Friday and you like to pass out some candy, uh, you can sign up in the back for that. So that happens on Friday. Um, if you're just now hearing about this and you're like, why am I not, why didn't I know about this already? It's probably because you're not getting our emails. And so if you're not getting our emails, the way to remedy that is register for our website and then, uh, automatically put on our email list. And if you've already registered and you're still not getting emails, check your spam, your trash folder, and just make sure it's going to the right folder. Those are my announcements. Thank you. Mark chapter nine is what we're studying. Uh, if you turn there in your Bibles, uh, Mark is a biography about Jesus. It's written by a guy named Mark, and Mark was a traveling companion of Peter, and Peter walked around with Jesus for three years. As Peter describes Jesus, Peter describes a king. And not just any king, the king of kings. And as Jesus lives his life, the first part of Mark, what we see of Jesus is that he has sovereignty. He is in control of everything. There is nothing that Jesus can't affect change in. Everything that he comes up against, he's able to overcome it. He's able to defeat it. He's able to quiet it. He's able to make it right. So he's the king of kings, and he's come to establish a kingdom in which everything is as it should be, and nothing could be better. Uh, That's a kingdom that I want to be a part of. And the good news for all of us is that Jesus, as he's going around uh, recruiting people to be part of his kingdom, he goes to all the nobodies, all the rejects, all the losers, uh, the people that society had kind of pushed to the margins. Jesus goes after those people. And so what that communicates to me is that everybody, no matter where you are in your life or your faith journey, everybody is invited to be part of this kingdom. Now here is, this is the place that we kind of get tripped up. There are conditions. There are conditions, and Jesus lays it out. In Mark chapter 9, this this passage that we're in right now is a section in Jesus' ministry where he communicates to his disciples what is required to be part of this kingdom and to advance this kingdom. Mark chapter 9, verse 30, uh, then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but Jesus didn't want anyone to know it. Why? A public ministry for Jesus is now over. And he's focused his attention, verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples. 
He's now focused his attention on the people that are going to carry his mission into the future. Jesus knows soon I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to be buried in the ground. Three days later, I'm going to come back to life. Forty days after that, I'm going to ascend to heaven. And now my disciples are going to be responsible for carrying this gospel to the ends of the earth. I need to make sure that they know what's required for this mission. And so we've talked about over the last several several weeks, what does it look like to carry this mission? What does it look like to be part of this kingdom? We've talked about sacrifice. We've talked about faith. We've talked about humility. Today, we're going to talk about radical devotion. In order to be part of the kingdom of God, uh, in order to advance his, his kingdom to the ends of the earth, you need to be radically devoted to Jesus. Now, the word radical, the concept of radical isn't very popular in our day and age. Nobody wants to be a radical anything. Nobody wants radical anything. If you go to the doctor uh, for some sort of ailment and your doctor's like, okay, we're going to try a radical treatment on you, then you're probably going to say, no, thank you. If you go to the shop and you're like, my brakes are jacked up and the mechanic's like, we're going to try radical solution. You're like, no, just give me the normal solution. I don't want the radical one. Uh, Radical carries negative connotation. Uh, what, what do they call radical Islamists? What do they call radical Islamists? Terrorists, right? There's a, there's a negative connotation with this idea of being radical. Jesus has called us to be radical Christians. What does that look like? Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. Let's all stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. Whoever causes one of the lit- these little ones who believes in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we've all assembled here today because we honor you, we respect you, we love you. And Lord, we come here as weak and flawed and not knowing oftentimes what to do and not really having the strength to do it. And so we come in need, Lord. We long for more of you And so I pray, Lord, that you'll honor our requests today, that you'll come and you'll meet with us in a very real and tangible way. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll speak through me. I'm a sinner. I'm only saved by your grace. And I'm really not any better than anybody that's in this room and nobody that's watching online. I am totally dependent on you, Lord, and and I can't do this without you. So please, Holy Spirit, use me today and speak through me. And I pray that your words, Lord, fall on fertile soil on hearts that are receptive, on ears that are open, or on eyes that can see. Lord, help us to become the people you created us to be. As you stand there with your eyes closed, pray a prayer of something like this. Father, speak to me. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. In Mark 9, uh, verse 42, Jesus says, if somebody causes a little one, and, and, and that's kind of a euphemism for somebody that's impressionable, somebody that can be um, molded or shaped or directed in some sort of way. The truth of the matter is, to a certain degree, we're all impressionable. To 
to a certain degree, we're all still moldable. We're all being guided in some sort of way. Jesus says, if you, if you cause somebody that believes in me to fall away, to fall away, that, that word, other translations, is stumbled, or cause them to stumble, cause them to be entrapped, entrapped by sin. Uh, the word is, in the Greek, scandalizomai, scandalizomai. And it's the Greek word from which we get our word scandalize, scandalize. When I was in fifth grade, uh, my next-door neighbor, his name was Jimmy Dean. Uh, I'll never forget that because of the sausage, Jimmy Dean. He invited me over to his house. He had built a fort in his, back, his backyard, and so he wanted me to come over. And he said specifically, he said, I found something really cool in my dad's closet. Some of y'all know exactly where this is going. So I went over to the clubhouse, and he pulled out a magazine that had a scantily dressed woman on the front and said Playboy on the top. And this was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. So Jimmy Dean scandalized me, he scandalized me. If you've ever been in a situation where a busybody housewife pulls you into gossip hour, you've been scandalized by her. If you have been in high school, right, and somebody gives you for the first time a pill to pop or a joint to smoke or a bottle to drink from, you've been scandalized by that person. Uh, if you're in an environment and somebody with authority teaches you a godless ideology that shapes your worldview in a godless way, you've been scandalized by that person. Jesus says, anybody that scandalizes, that causes somebody that believes in me, causes them to fall away, it would have been better for that person to tie a boulder, a millstone around their neck, go and jump in the sea, sink to the bottom of the ocean and drown. It will be better for them to do that than what's going to happen to them when God gets a hold of them. That's intense, isn't it? It's extreme language. Jesus is using hyperbolic metaphors, but this is consistent with biblical teaching from cover to cover. We're studying the book of Genesis on Wednesday night, and we've been talking about Abraham. God said to Abraham, the very beginning, whoever blesses you will be what? Blessed. Whoever curses you will what? Be cursed. So from the beginning, God promises to place divine protection over his people. Why is God so protective of his people? In Mark chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus says this, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes who? Me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 25, he's talking about the day of judgment. And on that day, he'll separate the sheep from the goats, those who love him and serve him and those who have rebelled against him, those who have rejected him. The sheep will go to heaven. They'll be with the Lord. The goats will go to hell. He'll say to the goats, depart from me. I never knew you. And then in, to the faithful, he'll say this, Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well, what distinguishes the two? How can Jesus tell the ones that are the sheep from the goats, those that love him and serve him and those who have rejected him? What's, what's the distinguishing factor? Look at what Jesus says, verse 35, four. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And these people will say, these sheep will say, well, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? Look what Jesus says, verse 40. And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did 
for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you have done for who? Me. Remember Saul, the Christian killer. And he terrorized the very first Christians. He would go from town to town. He'd hunt them down. He'd have them arrested and beaten and sometimes killed. You remember this guy? Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. And remember what Jesus said? Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? He doesn't say persecute the Christians. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Persecute me. You see, God has placed divine protection on his people. Why? Because Christ lives in every believer. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, you cannot isolate the believer from Christ. The believer and the Lord are inseparable. So much so that whatever you have done to a fellow believer, you have done to Christ. However you have treated a believer, that is how you are treating Jesus. That's why John says this, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a what? Liar. Christ in you cannot hate Christ in your brother or sister. It's impossible. And so if you hate a brother in Christ, the love of God, the spirit of God is not in you. You are lying to yourself about being a Christian. That's what John says. And the fate of the man who drowns with a millstone tied around his neck will be better than your fate when you see God face to face. Jesus is calling us in this passage to be radically devoted to the well-being of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. To be radically devoted to one another, especially to one another's spiritual well-being. Kirkwood, my buddy, he just turned 40, so I got to tell a story on him. Just turned 40. I I met Kirkwood when I was in sixth grade. We had reading class together. And in reading class, um, for whatever reason, I hope they don't do this to students any longer. Maybe they do. Uh, But this was kind of traumatic for me. The teacher had me read aloud in class, and I was a terrible reader. Terrible reader. And I, I didn't know all the words, and I stumbled through it. It took me about 15 minutes to read one paragraph. The kids are, are snickering the whole time. I turned beet red. I'm sweating and everything else. It was just a traumatic experience. By the time I finished, class was over, and we went to the bathroom. As we were in the bathroom, this little punk, never forget, Brad, started giving me a hard time about my inability to read. And he goes, today, Junior. Well, before I could turn around, Kirkwood had taken Brad and flipped him upside down and put him in the trash can. We've been friends ever since. He's been my personal bodyguard. In this church, may we be more of Kirkwood than we are of Jimmy. May we be those not that scandalize one another, but those that have each other's back to a radical degree, to an extreme degree. We will not gossip and slander and backbite and hurt and pull each other into sin. We will not do that. There's a millstone awaiting people who scandalize those who believe. Instead, we will have each other's back. We will root for each other. We will cheer for each other. We will mourn with each other when others mourn. We will rejoice with each other when others rejoice. We'll build each other up because the kingdom of God is made for such as those radically devoted to each other's well-being. That's what Jesus is calling for. 
He's also calling for us to be radically devoted to purity. Look at what he says in verse 43 and following. If your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Again, this is hyperbolic metaphor language. So I don't want anybody coming in next week with an eye patch, okay? Don't do that. You you missed the point. Uh, There were actually many monastic sects uh, in the Middle Ages, and they they practiced self-flagellation, self-mutilation as a spiritual discipline. And so uh, sometimes they would do very extreme things in order to beat the sin out of themselves. They would whip themselves with a cat of nine tails. Sometimes they would cut a finger or a hand off or a gouge an eye out. And, and they did this, and they thought this was going to help them be more faithful to God. And actually, you read some of their uh, memoirs, and, and what you see, all of these, these monastic sects, they regretted doing it because it didn't help them get any closer to God. You see, what Jesus is saying here, the meaning of his words is, however painful the sacrifice required to protect your purity, it is worth it. He's saying, however pleasurable it may be to compromise your purity, it is not worth it. Today, I want to remind you that sin is not a toy to be played with. Pornography is not an entertainment choice. Drugs are never recreational. Flirting with your coworker is not innocent. Premarital sexual acts is not just physical. Lies are never little or white. Sin is not harmless. Sin is a cancer. It's a cancer. If your doctor comes to you and says you have cancer, not one person in this room would say, oh, it's no big deal, just leave it. We would not say that. Not one person in this room would say, oh, it would cost too much to get a treatment. I don't, I'm not willing to pay that cost. No, we would do whatever it takes to get that cancer out of us, wouldn't we? So why do we allow sin, known willful sin, to remain in our life? Sin is a deadly cancer, and it must be cut all the way out. And then once you've cut it out, you need to radiate it in chemo and just make sure it never comes back because the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you there longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. Flee from temptation. Flee from sin like it will kill you because it will. Whatever it costs, get it out of your life. It may cost you years in rehab. It may cost you thousands of dollars in counseling. It may cost you your job. It may cost you friends. It may cost you a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance. It may cost you internet access. It may cost you more than you ever thought it would, but it's worth it. Whatever the cost. There was a uh, a revival that we had at the university that I went to. And it was an outdoor open uh, tent revival. And this uh, old Baptist preacher got up there for three nights straight, and he talked to us about the wages of sin. And I didn't think anybody was receptive. This guy didn't tell any jokes. He wasn't funny or clever at all. He just preached the word as hard as he could. He yelled and spit at us for three solid nights. At the end of three nights, they took the tent down. That next day, I came 
and walked by where they had the revival, and I saw a mound, a mound of things that people had brought to this place as a sacrifice, things that they could no longer keep in their life because it was causing them to sin. I saw a mountain of pornographic um, uh, magazines. I saw those, see, you remember back in the day we used CDs, you remember that? And you kept it in a book, and the book was valuable. It was like three or $400 worth of CDs in one book. You held on to it. There were, there were hundreds of these, these books of CDs of music that was corrupting people's minds. They said, I can't listen to this and be pure. I can't do it. I saw people's computers, not just like their little, little not the whole CPU, the monitor, everything. They couldn't have it in their room and not look at pornography. I saw bags of pills. I saw bags of weed. I saw all these things that were causing people to sin, causing people to, to stumble, and they put it there on Staplon. They, they said, let's burn it. Whatever it costs. To get sin out of your life, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's going to cost you something, parents, to raise Christian children in our day and age. It's going to cost you something. My oldest, we just got her a cell phone. She's been begging since she's eight years old because all of her friends, Daddy, all my friends have a cell phone. I want a cell phone. We finally got her a cell phone. I went to the store. I said, give me a flip phone. They said, we don't sell flip phones. I said, okay, give me a phone and show me how to turn the dad off. So she only talk and text. That's it. That's all she gets. Why? She's not going to be on social media. She's not going to have free reign on the internet. Not because I don't trust her. I'm not letting her have that for the same reason I don't give her the keys to my truck. She's not ready for that. She's not ready for it. And so she won't be on social media. She's not going to be on TikTok. She's not going to be on Snapchat. Daddy, everybody else is on there. So-and-so, they've got it. They got, and, I, and this is what I say, I'm not so-and-so's daddy. I'm not their daddy. I'm responsible for you, you. It's my job to make sure you grow up the best I can to make sure you grow up to love and follow Jesus. And so I'm going to make sacrifices, and you're going to have to make sacrifices in order for us to get there. We just recently, this year, we decided we're going to homeschool her. We're going to homeschool her. And it's not because the public school system is terrible. There are so many great teachers in the public school system. I want you to know, and you be encouraged by this, there is prayer at the school board. There is prayer every single week at the school board. So God is working, you know. Uh, But this is what I know. By law, by law, uh, every teacher has to teach a, a curriculum that is absent of God, by law. And so this is what we do as Christians. We send our kids to a school that by law the teachers are, are, are obligated to teach material that is absent of God. And we send our kids there for 40 hours a week, 35, 40 hours a week. And then we bring them to church one hour a week and we expect our kids to grow up to love and follow Jesus and not be like the world. I don't, I don't, for us, we decided that's just not going to work. We've got to be more intentional about what our kids are learning and what we're teaching our kids. And so it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost my daughter something. It's going to cost them. They, they, they not, might not get prom. They might not get that. They might not get, maybe they, they get involved in some sort of a sport, and maybe they don't get to play the sport that they want to play. And this is what I'm saying. Whatever the cost, in order for my kids to grow up, to love and follow Jesus, it's worth the cost. If they don't get prom, I'd rather them not get prom and end up at the heavenly banquet. Amen? Whatever the cost, Jesus is saying, if, you're, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your cell phone causes you to sin, throw it away. 
If you've got a boyfriend that's causing you to sin, break up with him. Whatever the cost, it's worth it. Why? Because hell's that bad. Hell's that bad. Now, for whatever reason, many churches stop talking about hell. Corporate Christianity is not going to talk about hell. You're not going to hear about hell on Air, Air One or K-Love. It, just, it doesn't get great ratings, right? It's not fun to think about. But did you know Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven? See, not only do we need a compelling vision to run towards, we also need a terrifying nightmare to run away from. Because Satan is that deceptive and sin is that tempting. So we need something to run towards and we need something to run away from. Heaven is a place where everything is as it should be. Nothing could be better. No crying, no pain, no death, no mourning. Everything is the way it should be. Uh, Jesus calls heaven a banquet. Y'all like food? Amen. There's going to be some good food in heaven. He calls it a paradise. Who doesn't want to be in a paradise? Jesus describes heaven as a welcoming father's home. Heaven is a place that you'll want to be for eternity. So yeah, I'm running towards that. But Jesus also gives us a description of the thing we're running away from. And hell is so bad. Jesus said, hell is so bad. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to be the owner of the earth, own all the gold and silver and all the beautiful things and be in charge? Everybody has to listen. You are the king or the queen, the supreme ruler of the earth. What would it profit a person to gain the whole world and end up in hell? That would be a terrible, catastrophic loss, Jesus says. Look at verse 48. Jesus says, end up in hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This word for hell, Jesus uses it three times. It's an ancient word. It's the name of a place, Gehenna. And this is a place the disciples have seen with their own eyes. It's a, it's a city, it's the city dump right outside of Jerusalem. It's a little valley there. And it's a place that was perpetually smoldering with trash. It smelt terrible. And there were dogs, wild dogs, that would roam this city dump. And they were always snarling at each other and, and, and attacking each other for what little morsels of food they could find. And there were maggots everywhere. And so the, the disciples are envisioning this place, Gehenna. And Jesus said, hell is like that. If you can envision it, but it's worse because the maggots that are in hell, they will eat and eat and eat on you. And you would wish that these maggots would just consume you. You wish they would just eat you up. But those maggots never die. They're never satisfied. They just continue perpetually to devour you. And, and the fire will burn you and burn you and burn you. And you'll wish that the fire would just burn you up and you would cease existing. But the fire is never quenched. It doesn't consume you. There you are. Jesus says that hell... It's like an outer darkness. He says it's a place that's marked by weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's so painful. It's so terrible that all you can do is grit your teeth in pain and cry out in terror. He says it's an outer darkness, a place without light. There's absolutely no hope, no chance of recovery, no chance of relief, no chance of restoration. There you are alone in eternity, perpetually in pain, and you have to live with, you have to exist with all of the sinful and rebellious choices that led you to that place. For all eternity, you have to live with the fact that you put yourself here. Whatever radical, 
measures are necessary to avoid that place. Listen to me, it's worth it. Verse 49, Jesus says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salted with fire was a, um, an expression that referred to consecration offerings in the Old Testament, grain offerings. You can read about it in Leviticus, first five chapters of Leviticus. Jesus is saying that everyone will become an offering to the Lord. Everyone will be salted with fire. And so you will either be an offering burnt in hell in honor of the justice of God, or you will be a living offering consumed by honoring the mercy of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, may this be us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. True worship is offering your life to the Lord as a sacrifice of praise. Radical devotion to Jesus Christ is the only proper, the only true Christianity. Look back over this passage. Look back over the teachings of Jesus and show me the third option. Show me where Jesus is saying, okay, well, if you want to be a preacher, if you want to be a missionary, if you want to be an evangelist, then this is what's required of you. But if you just want to be a normal Christian, you can do this. And then if you really want to rebel against God and be an evil person, then hell's for you. Show me the third option. Show me the option for the marginal Christian, for the the Christian that's just barely committed. Show me that option. It's not there. Here's the reality. There are two options. You are radically devoted to Jesus or you're lost. There is no through. Jesus is saying here, radical devotion to me in my ways is a sign of true conversion. If you're saved, if you're born again, if your heart has been regenerated, you will be radically devoted to Christ. If you aren't radically devoted, you aren't saved. You're headed for hell. Confess, repent, believe, allow your, the, the Lord to change your heart and be saved. There's no third option. Verse 50, Jesus says salt is good. But if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? In the Levitical offerings, they would take salt and they would sprinkle it on the sacrifice. This was to signify that this offering was devoted, it was consecrated to God. So the the salt was a sign of holiness. Now, the word holiness, it doesn't mean perfect. It means altogether different. It means radically different unlike anything else. Jesus is saying being radically different, being salty, being holy is a good thing. Jesus is calling us to be radically devoted to him. You're called to be radically devoted. Radically devoted is frowned upon in our day, is it not? Over the last two years, I've been called all sorts of names. I've been called homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic, Christian nationalist. All sorts of names. Much worse that I can't even say from this pulpit. You have been called names. You will be called names. Bible thumper, holy roller, intolerant, bigoted, ignorant, simple-minded. We could go on and on. More and more in our culture, as it becomes more and more godless, you as a Christian will become more and more marginalized. But listen, friends, I don't care what people call me. 
Their titles mean absolutely nothing to me as long as I'm true to the word. If somebody wants to come to me and show me where I'm wrong in the word, then we can have a conversation. If you just want to call me name to try and disqualify and discount the truth of God, that doesn't mean anything to me. Titles don't mean anything to me. I'm radically devoted to Jesus Christ. Jesus says salt is good. I'm a citizen of heaven, and that's all that matters to me. Get over what the godless world says or thinks about you. Become obsessed with what God says and thinks about you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus is talking about the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. How does the salt lose its flavor? Well, in the ancient world, salt was very extensive. And so merchants, they would take salt and they would dilute it with some other compound. That would keep the weight of it up, but keep the cost down. Uh, As time went on, the salt became more and more diluted to the point that it was no longer salty. And at that point, it was only good to be thrown out into the street and used as gravel. How does a Christian lose his saltiness? How does a Christian lose his his usefulness? Compromise on the word of God. Dilute your convictions to placate this godless world. Mix your devotions and become double-minded. I'm trying to please God and man. I'm trying to please myself and God. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So many Christians over the last couple years, they have compromised on clear biblical teaching in order to win the approval of this godless world. They have lost their saltiness for the sake of respectability. They did it for the sake of getting more views on YouTube, getting more clicks on their podcast, getting an article published in the New York Times, being palatable to the secular world around them. And then these men have become uh, respectable to man but useless to God. What's the fate of these deluders? What's the fate of every person that compromises on their convictions? Well, eventually, when the secular world has no more use for these type of people, Then they get tossed out of the club and trampled, dragged on social media. Compromise doesn't affect change in godlessness. It doesn't. Compromise only gives more license for the godless to remain lost. That's all it does. The moment you refuse to compromise or comply or consent to godlessness, you'll be canceled. The moment you push back, you'll be canceled. And so you might as well you might as well not compromise to begin with. You might as well stay true to convictions to begin with. Jesus Christ, our King, does not compromise. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible says he is a solid rock foundation. He does not change like shifting shadows. Jesus doesn't change, and neither should you. He does not compromise, and neither should you. You aren't weird. You aren't intolerant. You aren't ignorant. You aren't simple-minded. You aren't fill-in-the-blank, whatever the godless world wants to call you. You aren't that. If you're in the Scriptures, if you're based on God's Word, you are right. You are the salt of the earth, and the salt is good. Amen? Now, our world that is so dark and is so lost and is so deceived, our world doesn't need you to compromise. Our world needs you to be distinct. Our world, 
the people that you love and you care about, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family, there are many of them that have been deceived by the enemy. And listen to me, they are headed for the place where the worm eats and does not consume, where the fire burns, but it is not quenched. They are headed for that place. And the only thing that's going to deviate their course is for them to see in you that there's a different way. Mark chapter 5, 9, verse 50, Jesus says, Have salt among yourself and be at peace with one another. Stay salty and stay united. That's what Jesus says. Do you see how these two things go hand in hand? If I feel alone in my convictions, then guess what? It's easy to give up. But if I'm surrounded by a faith family that shares my convictions and that reaffirms my my biblical worldview, then guess what? It's easy to stand up. If I feel alone in my battles, the battles that inevitably come, it's easy to be overwhelmed. But if I have an army of believers that have my back, it's easy to overcome. Radically devoted to purity, radically devoted to one another. This is what's required to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. This is what's required. This is what's necessary to advance this kingdom to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the model that you've given us, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll do the work that only you can do. You've called us to be radically devoted to you. And Lord, you've you've said it over and over again. You you said the worker that puts his hand to the plow but, but looks back is not worthy of the kingdom. You said that, Lord. And that's where many of us are. We've got a foot in the world and we've got a foot on the scriptures, and it can't be so. We can't be divided. We can't be double-minded because we'll be tossed about by every cultural current there is. May it not be so for us, Lord. Help us to be radically devoted to one another. Lord, work in us a heart that is so committed, so devoted to one another that to the outside world, it looks radical. Our devotion, our commitment, our love, our care for one another. Help us to be so devoted Lord, to your word, to your ways, that it looks radical to the outside world. Help us to be so convinced that your words, that your promises, that your precepts, they're trustworthy and they're true, that we will not compromise them no matter what. No matter what it costs, Lord, in order for us to stay true to who you've called us to be, to what you've called us to be, Lord, help us to be willing to pay any cost in order to to maintain our devotion to you. Holy Spirit, Please work in us today. Lord, if there is any double-mindedness, if there's any doubt in this room, Holy Spirit, I pray that it'll melt away. Draw us nearer to you. Lord, help us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. We're gonna sing a song of invitation. It's a time to be prayed for, a time to be prayed over. It's also a time to be reminded of the body and blood of Christ. Jesus radically devoted to you. And that's good news today because we make mistakes. And in our devotion, sometimes we're going to stumble. We're not going to be perfect. The key is that we, we, we stay persistent and we keep abiding in Christ. And one of the ways that we do that every week is we're just reminded that he paid the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, for our salvation, and that we, in turn, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. And so as we sing this song, if you haven't already taken the emblems, I'd encourage you to do that. If you're here today and you feel far from Christ and you'd like to talk to to somebody about 
what's your next steps are, please come and talk to me. If you're here today and you just need somebody to pray with you, just please come and kneel at this altar. Come as we sing.